My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Train Fully podcast, where we dive deep into golf fitness. I am your host, Thomas Malchow. Every episode, we meet with professionals, experts, and amateurs from all over the world to help you enhance your performance and gain an edge in your game. If you find our podcast is helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, also, if you haven't done so already, head over to trainfully.com and sign up for our free online community platform. And after you sign up, check out our golf fitness programs. We have 10 programs in total. Some are more rehab-based, while others are more performance-based but all of them are designed for the biomechanics and functional anatomy of the golf swing. And they can be done either at home or in a gym. Now, speaking of golf fitness, uh, I'm very excited because today we have joining us, Dr. Dan Coglin. Dan is the head of strength and conditioning for the European tour, as well as an applied science researcher. And so he's working on the front lines with some of the best players in the world but he's also involved in a lot of research. And so this gives him a very unique view on golf performance. And so what he says carries a ton of weight. And so I want to talk a little bit about flexibility and mobility training before we get into the episode, because this topic comes up in our conversation, but we just kind of skim the surface a little bit and we don't really get into it very much. And I think you'll get more out of the episode if I give you some information first. So Dan's view on mobility, and I'm paraphrasing, is that some people can spend a lot of time on it. And although that's not necessarily a bad thing, it could be a lot of wasted time. Now, I'm not as negative on mobility training as Dan is, but I do think he makes a really important point. And for those of you who follow me, you know that I believe that we should only be using mobility techniques on tissues and structures that need it. And it can be done, I think, in a very targeted way, in a very efficient way. And when it is done that way, it can have an immediate impact on your range of motion. And I'm going to use the hips as an example. A lot of golfers have tight hips. And Dan and I talk about hip internal rotation in this episode. So I'm going to talk or focus specifically on hip internal rotation. If you have a decrease in hip internal rotation, it's probably not very productive to just be doing a bunch of random stretches, hoping to improve your mobility. Just like Dan said, you're, you're going to spend a lot of time doing that probably, and you're probably not going to get very good results. To get the results you're looking for, you'll need to first figure out why there's a restriction. And so I'm going to walk you through what I do. If somebody comes to me, with reduced hip internal rotation. There are two tests that I use to assess hip internal rotation. The first one is the supine 90-90 hip internal rotation test, and the other is the prone hip internal rotation test. The reason I use two tests is because each test helps me identify different possible restrictions. And so, for example, if somebody has reduced range of motion with the supine 90-90 hip internal rotation test, well, I know that the probable restrictions are from most likely to least likely the tensor fasciae lata, the gluteus minimus, the adductors, 
and the deep rotators, right? And those are all muscles. We could also have restrictions within the joint capsule, specifically the posterior and inferior portions of the hip capsule. So that's with the supine 90-90 hip internal rotation test. If there's a limitation with the prone hip internal rotation test, then I know that the probable restrictions are, again, from most likely to least likely, the piriformis and deep rotators, the posterior fibers of adductor magnus, and the iliopsoas, as well as the posterior portion of the hip capsule. Now, there could be other tissues and structures involved as well, but we're going to keep things simple and just stick with these. Now, quite often, a person could have reduced range of motion in one test, but not the other, right? So let's say, for example, this person has reduced range of motion with the supine 90-90 hip internal rotation test, but they have normal range of motion with the prone test. Well, I've already narrowed down the possible restrictions, right? And I know that the most likely restriction is a tight tensor fasciolata. And so the first thing I'm going to do is some myofascial release and stretching for the tensor fasciolata and then reassess. If the tensor fasciolata was part of the restriction, then there should be an immediate improvement in their hip range of motion. Now, for those of you who are up on your biomechanics and your functional anatomy and you're thinking, hey, wait a minute, the tensor fasciolata is part of the hip flexor complex. It flexes, abducts, and internally rotates the hip. How can a muscle that internally rotates the hip decrease hip internal rotation when it becomes tight? Well, it has to do with arthrokinematics. So arthrokinematics describes the movement between the joint surfaces, so the bony surfaces of the ball and socket of the hip joint. When the tensor fasciolata becomes tight, it can alter those movements. It can alter arthrokinematics, and it can decrease hip range of motion in that way. Right. So let's say, though, that we address the TFL and there's still no improvement in the hip range of motion. Well, now we know that the TFL probably isn't the culprit and we can move on down our list. And I have an efficient system for going through the entire body, assessing each joint and identifying the possible restrictions, either muscular or capsular to the person's mobility, right? And then once we know what those restrictions are, I can then give them one or two techniques. Each technique takes 30 seconds. So they get one or two techniques for each restriction. And they do those techniques as part of their warm-up, right? So it's part of their, their routine. It's part of their programming. And it literally takes 30 seconds each technique. So it doesn't take very much time. And because it's part of their warm-up, it can help them have a more productive workout, right? Let's say this person is, is doing heavy squats or deadlifts that day. Well, hip internal rotation is involved in those movement patterns. It doesn't look like it is, but it is. So if you have deficits in hip internal rotation, it's going to affect your squat or deadlift, or it potentially could anyway. So by restoring your hip mobility, you're not just improving your mobility, you're also improving your ability to squat and deadlift. And quite often we can see improvements in strength almost immediately which means you could possibly have greater strength adaptations. And of course, this could influence your driving distance potential. But my point is, you don't need to be spending a ton of time on mobility work. Just like Dan said, you don't wanna be wasting your time on it and you don't wanna be doing things that aren't making any sort of impact. Also, not everybody needs mobility training. 
pretty much everybody could do with some strength training, but not everybody needs mobility training. At the moment, I have three clients that I don't do any mobility work with because they have hypermobility. They're too mobile. And this has led to some pretty significant injuries. So their programs are 100% built on improving dynamic stability and strength. So keep that in mind as well. There are people who shouldn't be doing any mobility work. Now, Dan has an online golf performance community called Golf Performance Network. If you're a golf coach or you're a strength and conditioning coach, therapist, or doctor who works with golfers, I recommend checking that out, golfperformancenetwork.com. They do regular research reviews and you get access to their live video sessions, which includes webinars, masterminds, and Q&As. Having a community of researchers and peers to help you navigate through the muddy waters of sports science is really important. I myself belong to four online communities. I host one of them, the Train Fully community, and the other three are led by excellent and very well-known researchers. Two of them have a journal club where we talk about current concepts, uh, execution plans, and research updates. And these communities allow me to share ideas and get advice from other professionals in my field. None of us have infinite knowledge, right? And I think it's really important to continue learning because the science is always evolving. So check out Dan's online community, golfperformancenetwork.com. Also check out his personal website, dancoglin.com and his Instagram page, Dr. Dan Coglin. Enjoy the episode and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right, so joining us today, the head of strength and conditioning for the European Tour, Dr. Dan Coglin. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for having me. So I want to get into the specifics of how you monitor the players, what you do during the workouts, and, and how you design their programs here in a moment. But before we get into that, can you please describe your role with the European Tour, what your schedule generally looks like, and how many players you typically work with? Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess if we start sort of broad on the role, um, we've got the European Tour Performance Institute, which some of the listeners might have heard of before. Um, we've got awesome sort of Twitter and Instagram that you can go check out, um, ETPI. Um, and that's kind of our whole performance medical service. So we have um, within that our sports doctors, our therapists who range from osteopaths, chiropractors, physios, like the whole lot. Um, we've got a, nutrition, a fantastic nutrition team on board. Um, we have mental health services. We have skin cancer screenings. Um, we have like anti-doping education that goes into that. Uh, we have specialist clinics where wrist specialists or back specialists or whoever it might be come to certain events to provide support. So we have this kind of big performance and medical service on tour. Um, and then my role kind of sits within that. So I lead the S&C service of, of that kind of unit. Um, and obviously we integrate, it's a massively interdisciplinary team where we all work together and collaborate on all sorts of things. Um, but generally my day-to-day -day roles involve um, organizing the sort of facilities at the event. So I'll make sure that every event players have good gym access. Um, if we need to, we'll also sort of build gyms, especially for the big tournaments. We'll, we'll have quite nice, impressive gyms, so like the Open and uh, BMW and all that kind of stuff. We always always have pop-ups and stuff. Um, then we have the kind of communications to players around that stuff. 
Um, then we're available at um, usually around sort of 30 to 35 events a year uh, between me and my team. And that will mainly cover like main tour for up to around 25 or so. We'll cover Q school and five or so on challenge tour. And then we also cover seniors tour as part of that as well. So that's kind of our face-to-face -face delivery. But as well as that, players can access us outside of those uh, tournaments. So uh, like today, for example, I've had a bunch of calls with players who are planning their off season. We jump on a video call, we set their plans, etc. And players work with us in a range of different ways. But broadly speaking, you can kind of break it down to three types of work. One is the kind of drop in, want a bit of advice, which might be off the off the back of a therapy session. They're coming in to sort of manage an injury, get some rehab advice, integrate with the therapist or just because they just want to know some stuff. So they just walk in another type of person comes in with maybe something in mind, like they want to do some testing or they want to get a bit of a program, but they don't want us on their back all the time. They want to kind of do their own thing, get the advice, get the sort of structured information off us. And then maybe they'll come back in six weeks, eight weeks, whenever they're ready for a review. And then another type of person wants us to do everything. So we test them, we give them programs, we see them at every single tournament and we are their kind of exclusive person. Um, Across those first two categories as well, we often collaborate with um, some of the, the practitioners that work with players privately as well, whether that be a coach, an SNC coach, a therapist. Um, in terms of number of players, it's an open service. So basically all of them and none of them, you know, like um, I, I don't claim to work with a player because they don't directly pay me a lot of the time. You know, they're just coming to use the service and we might have people on our books that we speak to pretty much every single week. Um, we might have someone that we see once, once um, you know, a year, every now and then, um, whatever. But the chances are that we've helped somebody or we've helped every player or pretty much every player at some point, um, whether that's just giving them a great gym, whether that's testing them and working with their team or whether that's being like their guy who does everything for them. Right. Awesome. Well, let's get into the specifics now. I, I think our first opportunity to make an impact on a golfer's performance is during the assessment process. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, that opportunity is missed by people because they're kind of just doing a bunch of assessments, they're collecting a bunch of information, but they're not really doing anything with that information. I'm a firm believer that we should only be using an assessment if we're going to do something with the information it provides us with, right? So the information we collect during the assessment should help guide the program design. And so for me, quite often, the assessment I use with one golfer might look a little bit different than the assessment I use with another golfer, because I'm trying to hone in on the information that's relevant to the golfer in front of me. Now, you have a very specific population, so your approach might be a little bit different. Can you walk us through your assessment process and describe what you're looking for? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think first off, just to, I guess it's important just to say that I totally agree with you. Like, I think for me, one of the big downfalls of not just golf assessment and working with performance golfers, but across sport can sometimes be standardized assessment processes that um, result in a ton of data that sits on a computer and never gets looked at. Um, so something that we've tried to be very careful about is only having um, assessments as standard that we care about for pretty much everyone. And then the rest is really quite bespoke and just depends on who walks in, when they walk in, what mood they're in, what their kind of history with us is and all that stuff. And also the time we have, you know, different, like if we're seeing someone on a Thursday or Friday at the open, we might test them differently to like a 
you know, a Tuesday the week before the season starts in Dubai. Um, in general, though, our assessment process starts with, as all should, a really good conversation with the player. Um, we want to know why they're coming to see us. Obviously, this is a service where they choose to see us. They're not being forced to see us. So usually they have their own views, opinions, history and ideas about what they're going to get out of the process. Sometimes that's right. Sometimes it's um, it needs a bit of education to steer, but we want to know where they're coming from, what they want out of the process, what their history is, and just get to know them a little bit um, and allow them to sort of drive that a little bit. Um, after that, I'd say if we're getting into outside of just gathering information, I mean, obviously we'll speak to coaches or other people that have been involved when, with um, where we can as well. But outside of that, when we're getting into the sort of physical assessment process. Um, I guess the first thing for me is I just like to watch them warm up. Um, sometimes it's putting them on the spot if they don't know what they're doing, but I'll say, I'll just go through your normal warm up before we do our test. Um, and then I get to see a bit of a snapshot of, I guess, in that you see their current beliefs, the things that they value, um, their habits, whether they're comfortable in a gym, um, all of those sorts of things, just from asking them to do it. Um, if they get really stuck and they haven't really done this before and they're brand new, I'll take them through something, but I still want to see them warm up. Um, if they're, you know, like if they're really well drilled with it, then I'll just see how they move. And essentially that is my movement screen. Um, we might look at other stuff, but that is what I want to look at. Um, after that, we'll go through a standard kind of two physical tests. Um, one is an isometric mid-thigh pull um, on some force plates, and that's a test to look at their strength. Um, with that, we just look at their net peak force. So the peak, the maximum amount of force that they can produce over a five second pull, we just take the absolute peak over that five seconds and net being minus body weight. Um, we then look at a counter movement jump and we look at their positive uh, takeoff impulse, uh, positive net impulse. So that's as they're pushing through the ground before they leave the ground until they the first moment that their toes come off the ground, that sort of positive part of the, the force time curve as they're pushing through the ground before they leave. Um, we look at and we calculate impulse, impulse being uh, force times time. And that's a really good predictor of their well of their club speed. So that's an explosive strength measure directly related to club speed. Um, so we have peak force on the ISO pull, we have impulse on the counter movement jump, um, and then sometimes we'll kind of eyeball um, their peak force on the jump and their DSI, uh, DSI being dynamic strength index uh, for those who aren't aware, which is basically the, um, I guess, the ratio between their, how strong they are on the pull and how explosive they are on the jump to get a bit of like an efficiency thing. Um, generally, we look at that in order of are you strong? Yes or no. If the answer is no, get a bit stronger. If the answer is yes, look at the impulse. Are you impulsive? Yes or no. If the answer is no, get more impulsive. If the answer to both is then yes, yes, you're strong. Yes, you're impulsive. We might look at DSI. Um, after that, it tends to be just bespoke. So they'll show me and talk to me about like their swing. I might have connected with their coach. I might have seen some stuff in the warm up. And let's say hypothetically um, that they're getting a bit of, I don't know, knee valgus on their right side as they're going back in the backswing. Then we might look at some hip abduction test um, or if their foot spinning out on the lead leg as they go into impact, we might look at internal rotation, range of movement, arbitrary examples, but bespoke is the point. Um, and then sometimes generally we'll do this if there's time, um, but it's not, it's not like a standard process. It's just regular. Um, we'll look at 
isometric uh, trunk test and an isometric neck test. Um, isometric trunk test is just a nice way of assessing their core strength uh, or trunk strength in a more objective way, because uh, usually it's not objectified much. Um, so for that, we generally get them sitting down, um, but in like a pull-off press type position with the hands out in front. And then we pull with a force sensor and see how much force they can resist before they lose position. Um, and then the neck, we do the same. We put like a skull cap thing on them and then we pull them until their neck position moves out of a line. Um, so we get like a peak amount of force they can deal with left and right side flexion isometrically and left and right rotation through their trunk isometrically. Again, not standard, but common. Um, and the neck one in particular is useful for like neck injury risk, or at least that's how we kind of see it or, or rehab if they get neck pain. So that's quite common. Um, so I think that kind of covers our, our testing procedure, but obviously, like I say, it's quite bespoke. So there's some of the general points, but it can kind of go anywhere really. So let's get into the, the goals of the programming now. Um, obviously the, the players are going to have performance goals that they're looking to achieve, right? They might want to win a certain number of tournaments or, or achieve a certain ranking. They might have goals in terms of club head speed, maybe driving distance putting, but all of that is going to be reliant on them remaining healthy and not becoming injured, right? A player's best ability is availability. So Dan, what's your approach to injury prevention? Yeah, so um, I think you're right to identify it as a really important thing. So we we developed something we call the probability of performance impact model, which is what which basically underpins our philosophy on on the European tour, the players we work with. And that is basically what's the most likely thing that we're going to impact by doing SNC. Um, so it's not what matters most to the player, like that's going to vary, but what is most likely? If we had 100 players, we gave them all SNC, what's the most likely thing? And for us, the most likely thing is availability through not getting injured, just like you say. The next thing is availability and readiness to perform, i.e. not only are they not injured, but they're ready to go. They can deal with jet lag, they can deal with travel, they can deal with the demands of back-to-back -back tournaments, they can um, you know, kind of endure the sport, I suppose. Then after that, you've got things like club speed and swing movement and things. So the point of mentioning that is for us, that's a big priority. Injury prevention or injury risk reduction, I should say, because you can't necessarily present, prevent it and um, making sure that they're ready when they are available. And for me, that's very much like a behavioral thing. Um, I don't think, obviously there are individual differences to this. There might be an individual target or an individual thing that someone has to do based on an injury history that is bespoke to them. But in general, I'd say that good behaviors and general strength and conditioning, fitness, et cetera, are gonna reduce the risk of injury. So um, our approach is basically to make sure that they train regularly, and they lift some weights because we know, generally speaking, most injuries that golfers sustain are, are, are workload management related, like overuse often gets called. And if you make people stronger, that reduces the risk of overuse injuries broadly. So train regularly, include some strength training in their program. They're generally fit and healthy, i.e. like not massively overweight smoker who never does any exercise, but they're someone who, you know, keeps themselves in good shape. And that might be that they're getting enough of that from golf. It might be that we need to intervene and give them some additional stuff, but generally they're, they're fit and healthy. Um, the next things are that they generally eat well. So we work with our nutrition team on that. And a large part of that alongside the regular training comes from the um, environment we create for them. 
you know, like if they turn up to a European tour event and they know that there's a good chance there's going to be a great gym, a great players lounge, healthy food and barbells, we know that they can look after themselves. So that's that's probably one of the main things that we try and provide. Um, but then obviously our nutrition team um, can give more bespoke guidance where required. And then just general education around how to look after yourself, like how to sleep better if they're struggling with sleep and how to prioritize that, how to deal with jet lag, um, how to deal with just general demands of travel and being a tour golfer. Um, our whole SNC team, our therapy team, our nutrition team, our medics, they're all um, specialists in, in sports performance. So we all work as applied sports scientists giving that other piece of information. So, you know, in answer to your question, there isn't like one thing we do, but having good habits and behaviors across the board to stay healthy is our main main way of reducing injury risk um outside of that we do know you know from a more msk perspective neck injuries and wrist injuries are really common so in most of our programs you'll see some neck strength work and some wrist strength work purely because they're the two areas that tend not to just get picked up in a general program um, whereas the rest of it tends to just get picked up in the general thing right well, let's get into what I'm, I'm sure everybody wants us to talk about now, club head speed and driving distance. Now, some golfers are really targeting strength adaptations, right? They're becoming stronger, hoping that if they become stronger, they'll hit the ball farther. And that kind of makes sense, right? If you hit the ball with more force, the, the ball should go farther. Other golfers are getting even more specific and they're working on vertical jump height, right? And that really makes sense too, because in order to jump high, uh, you must be powerful. And if you're powerful, well, that should help you hit the ball farther as well. Dan, what does the research tell us about all this? And what should golfers be working on and monitoring in the gym to increase driving distance potential? Yeah, so good question. And there's there's so much that feeds into it. It's, it's hard to say there's definitely one thing. And again, I, I'm sorry, my all my answers are really vague. There's kind of an individual component to everything, isn't there? Um, I'd say first off, in terms of monitoring, like we there's a reason we look at um ISO pull and counter movement jump impulse. And that's because if you get stronger and you get more explosive, chances are that might transfer and be really useful. I do think people you look at jump height when they shouldn't look at jump height so much because we also know that body mass feeds into the equation being heavier can be good let's say you went through a hypertrophy block and you put on five kilos over the next eight weeks then you might not jump as high for the same force output um, so in general i would say look at other measures which kind of encompass your your mass and your your height so like force measures um, if people want to track that at home, though, you can just use something like um, MyJump2 as an app you can download on your phone. And from that, you can you can get um, power output and peak force and things just by putting in, um, you know, your jump height and your body mass and some some stuff like that. But anyway, so generally speaking, getting stronger, getting more explosive, getting bigger are the things that are going to help you hit the ball further in the gym. Um, I think just to kind of add a little bit to that um strength is really important because most golfers lack it like there aren't most people when they first coming into the come into the gym aren't very strong but your ability to produce force over a long period of time is very different to your ability to produce force over a short period of time so strength is very important if you don't have it but if you have it lots of explosive strength training becomes very important 
And also, even if you don't have it, doing explosive strength training is still important because it's a different quality. Your muscles are working in different ways, doing different things. So um, you should always look to have a bit of a blend. We tend not to have programs where someone's just doing strength or just explosive strength. We're usually trying to move the needle in in all areas and, and kind of help them complement each other. Um, I tend to describe it a bit like being in a drag race. So if you're in a drag race and you've got a car, you want that car to have a high top speed, which is the strength, your ability to get to a certain number, but then you need a really good zero to 60 time to actually use that number within the available distance of the, of the drag race. And so being really strong, but not very fast accessing, it doesn't allow you to use that strength in the swing. Um, so yeah, training things around half a second is important. And typically, if you look at research, it'll often say that downswing might be like quarter of a second or so. But I think in reality, it's closer to half a second because it's not when the club starts moving. It's when you start pushing through the ground, which actually happens about halfway up the backswing. You start transitioning some force into the ground to change direction of clubs. It gets to the top of the backswing. So um, explosive exercises around half a second that are more ballistic than plyometric are really good. So by ballistic versus plyometric, I mean, thing, you don't need to worry about rebound type drills where you bounce, bounce, bounce off the ground, but you're just doing like one big jump. So counter movement jumps, broad jumps, those sorts of things, weighted jumps, um, really, really good. So yeah, get big, get strong, get explosive, but in, in an order or prioritizing an area that suits you. Um, then obviously you've got the individual stuff that it's just impossible to kind of pinned down as an exact thing but each individual might have an area they need to work on based on a weak link in their swing or even by understanding someone's swing where they really need to exploit their super strengths you know if you've got someone who is very uh, uses the ground very very efficiently in their golf swing technically then really pushing forward their ability to produce more ground force in the gym through you know heavy squats and jumps and things like that is really important for them Whereas if you have someone who really sort of pulls down on the club and uses their upper body really dynamically, but their legs are relatively passive, they're obviously going to be able to get more out of themselves by training the thing that they use in their swing technically, which is getting their upper body strength to, and explosive strength to catch up. Um, or if someone's working on something technically to get distance, whether that's a longer backswing or whether that is, you know, the control of the club at the top or something, giving them the physical capability to do that can be important so there's the tying into what they're working on and what their swing signature is i suppose um and then i think the final thing is making sure that they're doing something where they're actually trying to transition the gym to the swing now if you have like a total newbie um they'll get these kind of gains where they'll have a jump of three or four mile an hour when they start training for the first half year because they've never done it before but if you've got someone who's trained you know, for a long time, then they probably need to make sure they're maximizing their swing time to transition the new physical qualities. So that might be three times a week doing some, you know, 15 to 25 max effort driver shots as like five sets of five or something like that, like you would in the gym with rest periods, um, working with a coach to develop their technique to be able to utilize the qualities that they're getting in the gym, um, understanding their dispersions when they've got, um, say, a a bomb where they're hitting it as hard as they can versus like a stock shot that they play all the time. Cause if the dispersions are slightly different, then they can use that tactically on the course. You know, if they know that their bomb is an extra three miles an hour, but it, it adds 10 yards to the dispersion, some fairways that will be favorable and some it won't. So 
you then have to transition it into performance, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So it's all making sure you're going through all those steps and not just expecting the gym stuff to just magically transition. What are your views on flexibility and mobility training? Um, I'd say it probably, I don't think anything's bad, but I'm probably slightly more negative on it than the average golfer or person around the golf fitness stuff might have, might be. Um, I think it's, it's used a bit too much in golf. So if I sat in the gym at a tour event and we looked at the guys who didn't work with us, cause they'll be doing different things to, to what I'd recommend, obviously I'd say on average, people do too much flexibility work, work and not enough heavy work or not enough explosive work at low volumes. So they might lift weights that are light for high volumes, but I tend not to see enough low volume, heavy, low volume, explosive. And I see too much flexibility. Um, and the reason I say that is I think flexibility, well, firstly, it doesn't reduce the risk of injury in general. Now, if you have a specific situation, of course, that might be different. Someone with an injury history is working on something, totally get it. But in general, um, flexibility work won't reduce your risk of the most common injury, injuries in golf, um, strength work and uh, workload management and sleeping well and being healthy. They're the things that matter. Um, flexibility work also isn't just broadly important. Um, you know, I, if your hamstrings are tight, but it's not affecting your golf swing, then that doesn't matter because, you know, you're not a ballet dancer and you're not a footballer who has to get their leg up in the air. You just have to do your swing. So for me, flexibility work is important when it's important. I, I can't do X, like the example I gave earlier of the lead foot spinning out impact because my internal hip rotation isn't sufficient. Therefore, I need to develop that versus, oh, I just need to do a load of flexibility work 30 minutes every single day for the rest of my life, but without like a clear goal or something I'm trying to achieve out of it, just hoping it'll have some general effect. So I think for some people it can be very important, but majority of people do it a bit too much. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think that uh, we should be chasing mobility. I don't think it's a case of more is necessarily better. I do think that there's an optimum range that we should be shooting for because um, oftentimes, especially with the population that I work with, if there are limitations in mobility, then we're going to have subsequent losses in strength, neuromuscular control and, and output over time. So I always address it first. Um, however, mobility can mean different things to different people, right? So I'm talking about soft tissue flexibility or the actual length of the muscle. I'm talking about soft tissue pliability, joint mobility and dynamic mobility. So for me, there are a lot of different components to it, but I always address it first because if there are limitations in mobility that cause compensations, then we're going to lose output and we're not going to get the most out of the athlete's body. And I found that if I try to strengthen on top of that loss of mobility, um, that usually doesn't help and sometimes makes things worse. But even more importantly, when we do have a loss of mobility, uh, I don't think we should be torquing on that joint, trying to improve range of motion, right? Like for example, if somebody has reduced hip internal rotation, we shouldn't just be forcing the joint into internal rotation. If there's a restriction or a limitation there, you know, there's the last thing you want to do is jam that joint into that movement. There's a reason there's limitation there. And, and my job is to find out why. And again, this is where that assessment is really important and really specific to the individual. Um, once I find out why 
there's a reduction in mobility, then I might use a combination of inhibitory techniques, joint mobilizations, stretches, or maybe isolated strengthening and coordination drills, right? Maybe that's what's what's uh, causing the restriction. Maybe it's not a tight muscle. Maybe it's a weak muscle or, or something with coordination. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, like from my perspective, so I use the example of the internal hip rotation, but just to sort of pick that apart a bit, like sometimes or often actually the the perception of tightness or your body's response to you know limit your range of motion comes because something's been overworked and it's been overworked because either you don't have the physical capacity to deal with the forces or because of the technique or the amount you're playing or whatever it might be so getting to the root cause of that can be quite important and also often with the internal rotation deficit it's not necessarily or you can stretch that better because actually a lot of golfers well everyone has different hip shapes and so a lot of golfers might have a hip shape that means they can't turn that much into their lead hip, which means that actually, you know, after a bit of investigation, you find, oh, I can't do anything about this. So we need to work around it in your swing and we might get them to turn their foot out a little bit or something. Um, I suppose where we, we differ a bit and it's not necessarily right or wrong, but where we differ a bit is I generally don't let flexibility deficits get in the way of loading um so perf well I'm, I'm making an assumption based on what you said you might not either or you might work around it of course but um something i certainly see a lot in the sort of development part of my job where i'm working with england golf and the juniors and, and things like that and let's see a bit with the tour is that people will be sort of held back from loading because they don't have like a movement pattern that's quite right or they don't have a certain range of movement or they haven't passed a certain test I tend to just work around the athlete in front of me and find a solution for them. So if I want to improve lower body strength and that athlete can't efficiently squat, let's say, I'll obviously work on their squat pattern with them and I'll try and get it so that they can do that in X amount of weeks or whatever it's going to take. Um, but in the meantime, I get them to do a heavy rack pull or something like that or get them in a leg press machine or try and find a solution so they can still load. So I think often you can in parallel develop the movement or mobility challenge that you might have in front of you whilst also layering on strength versus uh, you know something i see a lot is you can't load it until x happens and it's kind of an arbitrary x it's like you haven't passed this assessment yet so i, I try and work around it a little bit more um and also with the i think with sort of certain tests certain people just are never gonna pass them as well because you know like um if you've got certain shape hip, you might struggle to overhead squat. If you've got set, you know, like if you're six foot eight tall and you've got some funny limb, limb lengths, you might struggle with so many exercises. So I think just being a bit flexible around that stuff is really important for me as well. Yeah. And I agree, actually, I, I do the same thing. Um, I have a parallel loading. So if somebody can't squat or deadlift properly, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're not going to be doing, you know, lower body strength training. Um, but it does mean that I'm not going to have them do, say, the traditional squat if they can't get into that position. Another thing that, yeah, I, sure. that I find that is really important, too, is like when we're assessing joint range of motion, if I assess somebody's joint, it doesn't matter which one, but when I do a passive test, they have full range of motion. But when they do the active test, they don't. Well, then that's not going to be from a tight muscle, right? That's going to be more from either a weakness or a coordination issue. And so just because somebody has reduced range of motion doesn't necessarily mean that it's from something being tight. It could be from something being weak, right? And I think sometimes people overstretch joints, kind of almost making them unstable in the process. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, there's definitely a fair bit of wasted time. Again, using that hip example I used earlier, just because the FAI, the, the hip shape thing is a really nice example because I see it a lot. I, I certainly see a lot of players who have been stretching their hip for like the last year and pursuing technical change that isn't happening or isn't possible probably. And they waste all that time trying to make progress. Whereas if they had the right information from the right person, then they might have figured out actually, this is just the shape of my hip or this is a weakness or this is something else. And here's the proper strategy to deal with that. Absolutely. So let's get into the, the, the scheduling now. What does a typical weekly schedule look like for your players and do you periodize or use training blocks over the course of the year? Um, so I'm going to start with the periodized one because that's probably the sort of sensible place to start. And that is like, we try and understand what their yearly schedule is going to look like as best we can. So the guys are obviously super variable. Some people won't have invites to certain things and then they might suddenly get an invite or they might play really well or whatever. So it's always variable as any schedule with any athlete is, but generally speaking, we look at their year and we try and see where the opportunities are almost certainly going to sit. So, you know, they might do the early block in the middle East of competition, and then they have a little gap and then they go into the European season. And then we know there might be a little bit of a mid season gap. So we, we want to know where those little holes are, where we can chase something for two or three weeks if we need to. Um, so then we'll kind of map those. And then outside of that, pretty much everything is competition because the guys will um, compete a lot. You know, there'll be a lot of events. Um, so once we've identified those little gaps, we tend not to periodize in the traditional sense, as in like a block periodization model. Um, we tend to just get after what the athlete needs us to get after. Um, I think this is largely because golf isn't a seasonal sport anymore, certainly not on the European tour. Um, you know, like you start your 2022 season in 2021, um, you have like a few weeks off a year. So we don't have like a, an eight week block to develop this before we go into the season, except maybe with some challenge tour players and things. So generally speaking, it's what do they need to work on? Let's get after it. And then that's our focus until they've achieved that goal. And then we get after the next thing and so on. Um, I'd say in general, if we look at um, their training as a bit of a pie chart, the distribution of strengths, hypertrophy work, explosive strength work, or real sort of top end speed work will change based on those individual needs. But we always try and tick a little bit of everything again, just to keep on top because they're always in competition pretty much. Um, so that's, that's the periodization or, or lack of periodization approach in the traditional sense. Um, but in tournaments, we tend to almost do a bit more of like a daily undulating periodization model because um, there are clearly times that week where training is easier to do in a like more intensive way and then periods where, where maybe not. Um, so if we're looking at, say, a, a Monday to Sunday um, week, and the tournament is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We know that on Wednesday, they might be in the Pro-Am and then Tuesday, they're going to be at the tournament. Monday, they might be at home, let's say. Well, sort of working back on that, Monday or Tuesday, they're going to do their big session, whether that's strength, whether that's more hypertrophy focused, whatever. But the thing that's most tiring for the week goes there. So then they're recovered by either sort of more Tuesday, Wednesday time before the tournament starts. Um, let's say for the sake of argument, they did that on a Monday at home before they traveled out. 
Um, then on Wednesday, they'll come in and they'll do um, more of like a moderate volume. And I'll say how I change this in a second, but more of like a moderate volume session. And then later on, they'll do a slightly lower volume session. Now, um, if that athlete's focus is, say, strength, because strength is the thing that people might struggle with most in the tournaments, the main thing that we change is the volume as opposed to the intensity and just generally like the time under tension and the eccentric uh, focus of the exercises and the things that are going to cause that fatigue and soreness. So let's say on a Monday, they squat 120 kilos for five sets of five. On a Wednesday, if they were going to squat again, because obviously they do different exercise on different days, but let's say they're going to do the squat on Wednesday instead. Wednesday, they might do three sets of four or three sets of five, but 120 kilos. So we don't reduce the in like the weight, we reduce the volume. And then on um, sun, Saturday or Sunday, assuming they made the cut, then they might do like three sets of three at a similar sort of weight. Um, or, you know, if we want to reduce that eccentric a little bit, so they're less likely to feel sore um, or whatever, then we might get into like a half squat or a squat off the, off the support. So it's just like a bottoms up squat and they don't need to worry about down so much. So we're taking off the eccentric and the volume. Um, the other thing we'll do is reduce the amount of exercises in the program. So let's say Monday had seven exercises, Wednesday might have six, and then um, Saturday, Sunday might have like four or five. And so essentially we're keeping intensity high, but we're reducing volume as we go through the week. Um, again, another example, Monday might have Romanian deadlifts, which are very eccentric, but then on Sunday, they might be doing some barbell hip thrusts, or they might do a little bit more of the explosive work on the Sunday versus the, the Monday, a bit more of their strength work on the Monday. Um, so they're just like the little things that we tweak. But again, the most common mistake that I see of players is they say, I don't want to lift heavy at the tournament. Therefore, I'm going to do three sets of 10 where I'd normally do four sets of four. And I'm going to do it because it means they can lift a lighter weight and then their volume goes way up. And then actually they're probably taking on more fatigue. It's unaccustomed exercise. They're more likely to get sore. And they're usually the people who say, who sort of start dropping out and say, oh, I can't lift at tournaments. It makes me sore. I don't like strength and conditioning. So it's usually like a training error as opposed to a, a problem with S&C. And are you uh, training full body each time? Uh, typically, yes. Um, some of the players who like to train more free. So we, we normally say you're going to train two, three or four times a week. We tend to encourage people to be more on the two or three end because you can make good progress on that. But some people just love it. It's their hobby outside of golf and they want to do more. So sometimes they'll be on four. If they're on four, we tend to do upper lower splits um, and try not to increase like volume that much. So they might just have slightly shorter sessions with slightly longer rests and things, but the majority are on two, two to three sessions a week. Um, except again, those challenge tour players who get a bit more off season, like this time of year, they know that they might be off until March. They're probably a lot of them will be on four times a week. What about motivation? You know, I know people are listening and, and you're inspiring them, getting them excited about working out. But for some people, it's hard for them to maintain that, that motivation. What kind of strategies do you have for them? Yeah, so I think um, motivation, I, I think firstly, you need to try not to rely on motivation. So motivation might be the thing that, that helps you decide that you want to start doing some, some work in the gym or whatever it is. 
but motivation is fleeting like even with the best players in the world motivation is fleeting um you still feel bad at the end of the day or you still feel really tired when you wake up in the morning or you've had a busy day at work or whatever it might be um so i think it's more about building habits and making contracts with yourself and so i think a really nice way of doing it would be one get like a decent program actually have a structure don't just wander into the gym and make it up and i think even if you know what you're doing don't wander into the gym and make it up like write it ahead of time um you know i can be guilty of that not having a plan myself and then i walk in and you know it's, it's hard to follow so i have to write myself a plan um i think then the next thing is put a time in your diary that you're going to work out um so you know when the week starts say on a sunday you plan the week you know monday afternoon at three o'clock i'm going to go to the gym and wednesday at 6 a.m or i don't know whatever your schedule dictates so it's in the diary um the next thing that you can do is you know just simple things like set a reminder to go off but set the reminder um enough in advance that it gives you time to pack jump in the car drive to the gym or whatever that travel and prep time is so you kind of get that reminder you have to ignore it and well you have to decide to ignore it you have to decide not to go to the gym versus just forget um i think that really helps the other thing that's really good is like having an accountability partner like go with somebody even if it's just once a week it kind of keeps you keeps you motivated it keeps you accountable and you know if two people are going neither one wants to go but neither one will back out either um so that's quite helpful and then i suppose lastly if you're doing it for sport like like for golf understand how the program contributes to your goals in the thing that you're interested in because as much as people like me would love it if everyone goes to the gym because they just love the gym the reality is that some of them don't love the gym but they go because they know they have to because they love the sport that they play which is golf you know no golfer prefers the gym to golf otherwise there'd be a power lift or something so understand how it fits into your golf goals because that's what you love are there benefits to doing exercises that mimic the golf biomechanics or are we better off sticking to the basic exercises in the gym and then working on mechanics during practice so yeah that's a there's a lot of layers i'd say to that question so i think if you understand the biomechanics of the golf swing um you can definitely link exercises in that look nothing like golf that mimic the biomechanics of the golf swing so for example if you do a uh, bottoms up half squat so that would be like you set the safe for you know people who aren't sure on that set the safety bars so that you can just have the bar at like halfway up a squat position basically then you get under the bar and you do like a half squat up and then you bring it back down onto the supports and then you do that again so it's, it's a bit more like a deadlift but for like a half squat um, that mimics the joint angle of the golf swing when you've got your position at address. Um, so from a biomechanics position, the angle of the joints is very similar. If you look at something like a counter movement jump, a counter movement jump is kind of a half second high impulse activity and the force trace looks almost identical to your lead leg in the golf swing, for example. So that mimics the biomechanics of the golf swing. Um, you can think of it from like a joint or like a muscle specific perspective if you're doing some sort of like lat pull down, down type exercise that mimics the requirement of the lats to work in the golf swing in like a pulling action so first off i'd say that the basic exercises do mimic the biomechanics of the golf swing in different ways if you understand them in detail enough and i think actually one thing that's 
been a real negative consequence of everyone shouting about resistance training for golf as opposed to specific stuff is that sometimes the the nuance of that gets missed because the message becomes really simple oh just squat hinge push pull and you'll be fine and i think it's much more complicated than that and if you're working with someone who really knows what they're talking about in golf that that nuance will come out of even simple exercises um but then from that, you can, of course, move to slightly more specific things. I think it very much depends on the individual. Um, but let's say, for example, you have someone who has a bit of lateral hip movement in the golf swing during the downswings, their kind of hips sort of drift off to the, to the left a little bit towards target rather than rotate through the hip. Someone like that might have um, uh, you know, not have enough strength into abduction to be able to control that, that sort of movement. So doing something specific and isolated in abduction might be a really good way of helping translate that to the golf swing. Um, again, that's going a little bit more specific than just squats, but also the exercise looks nothing like golf, but it is specific to the needs of, of that individual, if you know what I mean. Um, so, I think there are lots of ways to make exercises specific. I would say in general, there are caveats to everything I'm saying, but like in general, if you watch most of the programs that I wrote, right, nothing would really look directly like the golf swing for the most part, but it would like mimic aspects of the golf swing. Um, give you another example, actually. So I was working with someone the other day who, who struggled with that rotation thing I was just talking about around the hips and we were getting him to do like a, a punching style medicine ball throw. So it didn't look like a golf swing. They're kind of just punching almost like a boxer to throw the, the ball, but we were getting them to step into it and then rotate their hips through and then punch. And it was trying to get that kind of high speed hip rotation control thing going on with the throw. Um, again, the whole thing didn't look like golf, but little segments of the exercise looks like golf. Um, does that kind of make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, that resonates with me because uh, I spend a lot of time trying to educate people on the biomechanics of the golf swing and why an exercise that might look nothing like the golf swing or, or might seem boring is actually really effective at enhancing golf performance because it mimics the, the biomechanics and the functional anatomy of golf. Now, what about research? Uh, you're involved in a lot of research. You oversee a lot of research. Is there anything exciting going on with research right now? Uh, yeah, for sure. So a few things that we're working on at the moment. Um, one is that there isn't much injury research in golf and the injury research that's out there isn't, uh, it's is kind of cross-sectional, like asking players, you know, are they injured right now or what were they, or retrospective stuff like what injuries have you had or whatever it might be. There's not really any sort of prospective proper epidemiology studies where you track people over a period of time and see what happens. Um, so we recently published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, um, like a consensus statement on how to do this epidemiology research. And then when we've got some um, pilots going at the moment across sort of general population for golf, where we find out lots of information about them as golfers um, and people, and then we just track them over a period of time to see what injuries happen. Um, and then the plan is to transition that across to the European tour as well and start looking at that. Um, so we, we understand what injuries happen in kind of real time, but then also what predictors, things that we knew at the beginning might be linked into those injuries. 
Um, another interesting sort of set of projects I've got, I've got a um, PhD student at the moment who's looking at um, how to train in tournaments effectively because of all the constraints we know about in tournaments. And he's done some great work where he's looked at, you know, for example, monitored all the training at the Open Championship and just looked at how the players train. Then given load of the players like questionnaires to find out how they think they're training so we can match up the two things are they doing what they think they're doing um but then also um so we can understand which areas to investigate to optimize their training in season um and the plan is to do some more elite level type research like that where we rather than just big studies with 50 people in doing a standardized program to get like a small number of real elite tour players track them over a period of time with all individualized type programs and, and have some case series come out so people can see what what sort of advice we're giving players there and then the last one that i'm really excited about is we're doing a lot of research into um or we're, we're trying to set up a lot of research at the moment into kind of women's specific golf performance stuff which is severely lacking in the research um, so at England Golf at the moment, we have someone called Kelly McNulty, who's helping us out, uh, who's just finishing off her PhD, and she mainly looks at the menstrual cycle and health and performance. Um, she's actually got Instagram and Twitter, period of the period. So anyone who's interested in women's health and performance should check out period of the period. Um, she's got great like podcasts and things where she speaks with lots of women's health and performance experts. But we're doing some research there to find out what our players know about the menstrual cycle and how it might link to their performance and how they might be able to manage it better and stuff like that. And then from there, we're going to try and do some stuff around that educating and in improving that situation um, and understanding it better. And then also we're doing similar with the ladies European tour at the moment, where we're going to try and do some of our like more standard performance research that we've already done on the main tour um, with the men looking at ISO pull, counter movement, jump impulse, club speed, all that sort of stuff. But we're also going to be looking at, um, again, sort of menstrual cycle and health and performance, um, potentially like breast mechanics type stuff as well. And really just understand the female golfer better because that research is virtually non-existent at the moment. The men have had all the attention. Can people get in touch with you and work with you one-on-one -on -one as well? Like I'm talking about the general population. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I work with, yeah, I work with players um, sort of personally. There's a couple of things that I do. So I have just a general, um, and you can get this through my Instagram, so Dr. Dan Coglin at, at, at Instagram um, in, in the link tree thing. But I've got a um, program that I do, which is just like a standardized program that people can follow if they want to pay a bit less and just, um, just have something to follow. But then I also work with lots of people on more of like a monthly remote basis where we update programs and put them through an app and that sort of thing. Um, and then sometimes for those who do want to come and see me, we can do some testing, but a lot of people just work with me um, remotely, just, just like I do with the players when I'm not seeing them. Yeah. Very cool. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I know everybody listening got a ton out of this and I'm sure they're going to have a lot of questions. So if you have questions, reach out to Dan. What's your website? Yeah, so um, you can find me at dancoglan.com or you can go onto Instagram or Twitter, which is just Dr. Dan Coglan. And yeah, welcome to receive any questions or feedback. So feel free to message me. I'm always happy to receive that sort of stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thank you very much.